He is risen. And He is risen indeed. And we are excited to be with you this morning. And I know a lot of people are looking for positives uh, during this very unusual season. And I would point out to you that uh, this year, one of the positives we can recognize is that your Easter outfit looks a lot more like your pajamas or sweats this morning. And uh, indeed, you are comfortable, I am sure, at home. And yet here we are together celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at a series of verses that might not be the usual path that is tread on an Easter Sunday, yet it is all about the resurrection. You'll find it in Luke chapter 24, if you'd open your Bibles there. And we'll look at verses 13 through 35 this morning, and we'll break it down into three sections. Now, on Good Friday, we made the point that the historically irrefutable reality that on April 6, 32 AD, at 3 p.m., Jesus was dead, but not for long. And we quoted that famed message from S.M. Lockridge, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And Sunday is here. And now here on the first day of the week, we can say indeed, Jesus is not dead, he is risen indeed. Now, since we are not meeting in our normal way, as I said, we're going to look at some verses that might, might be a little bit different than what the normal passages are. But the central focus of our time today, as I said, will be the resurrection of Christ. Now, there are many today, as is evidenced by the attendance on Easter and Christmas, who know about a personage that is named Jesus as a historical verifiable uh, being. And he is indeed the central figure of the Easter message to be sure, but they fail to recognize that the story doesn't end at the cross, nor did it end at the tomb, but early in the morning on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead the third day since he had died. Now, today we're celebrating a day that literally changed lives and the world and continues to do so to this day. And I wanna do a bit of housekeeping, so to speak, so some today can focus on what is truly important. Now, some call today Easter. Some get upset over anyone using the term Easter, citing that it was a pagan holiday associated with the Mesopotamian goddess of fertility, Ishtar. And some say Easter is simply a translation of Ishtar. Well, let me let you in on a little secret this morning. There is zero historical evidence that bunnies, eggs, or even chocolate was associated with the worship of Ishtar. As a matter of fact, chocolate in the form we know it today wasn't even invented until 1847, and Cadbury was the first manufacturer of molded chocolate who went into business in 1868. Listen, the word Easter has nothing to do with the Mesopotamian fertility goddess Ishtar, nor is it related with the Germanic goddess Oster. The English word Easter actually has some Germanic roots, and it is the compound of two words, the first being Esther, meaning to stand, the second being Stehen, or the first meaning first, or Esther meaning first, and Stephan meaning to stand, or Stehen, I should say. Now, these words combine to form the German word Esterhen, which is the modern-day German word for resurrection. So when you use the term Easter, you are using a German word for the resurrection. Now, in Hebrew, Passover is Peshach. In the Greek form, it's simply a transliteration and is uh, translated as Pasha. And virtually all languages refer to Easter as either a transliterated form of Pasha or the resurrection. English and German are the only languages that use Easter or Ostern to refer to the celebration we commemorate today. Now, I shared all that with you, even though I butchered part of it in the middle, for this reason. Some Christians today need to focus on what's really important and not be bitter about some calling today Easter because today, whether you use the term Ostern, Easter, Peshach, or Peshach, it's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what's important today. 
Yet there are many Bible detractors, many who challenge the story we're going to look at today and commemorate today. A famed atheist, Richard Dawkins of late, stated that no one can rise from the dead. I find that to be a curious statement because that's the same man who believes and teaches nothing created everything. Now there are some who argue that Jesus being God in human flesh is an impossibility. There's no such thing. It couldn't happen. Others say God couldn't have a son. Well, first of all, when you say God couldn't, you've eliminated whoever you're talking about as being God because God can do anything as it pertains to creative abilities and powers. Others say God would not stoop to such a level as veiling himself and his glory in human flesh. But the fact is, not only is Jesus being God in human flesh a reality, it is a necessity. The Bible teaches the practice of a kinsman redeemer, one who would buy back another from slavery or indebtedness. And according to scripture, a kinsman redeemer had to meet four qualifications. First, they had to be a blood relative. Second, they had to be willing to redeem. We find all these things in the book of Ruth. Third, they had to be able to redeem or to pay the redemption price. And lastly, they had to be free from indebtedness themselves. So God sent his son into the world to be a kinsman redeemer for you and I. He came in human flesh for two reasons. First, in his supernatural and divine state, he did not have the capacity for death. So he could not die for the sins of the world. So he became a man to become our blood relative and be able to die for our sins. He also did this willingly as John 10, 18, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. Also, he was able to pay the redemption price because he did come in human flesh because the wages of sin was death. He needed to be able to die. And without the shedding of blood, the law said, the redemption or remission of sins was impossible. But we also note that he didn't owe the wages of sin because Jesus was and is our sinless savior. So what about the question? Was he actually God in human flesh? Well, the Bible predicts in Isaiah 7:14 that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. Is Isaiah referring to Jesus of Nazareth, a man who would be God with us? Well, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God. We're then told in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or in other words, God became flesh and lived among the people of the earth, specifically the Jews. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Listen, yes, Jesus is the son of God. Yes, he is God who became flesh and dwelt among us for the very purpose that we commemorate and celebrate on this most sacred weekend. So he could go to the cross, die a sinner's death, fulfill the feast of unleavened bread, and early in the morning on the first day of the week, rise from the dead, fulfilling the feast of first fruits, having already fulfilled the feast of Passover on the day and hour of his death. And he did all this to pay the debt we owed that we might live forever. The Bible says, in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is the very heart of the text we're going to look at this morning, believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we might ask the question, why would anyone turn down such a great offer to have your sin forgiven, to live in heaven forever? And on top of that, not to have to do anything yourself, but rather rely on something that was done for you because salvation cannot be earned. It is the free gift of God, according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Why would anyone reject the plan of God that would save their eternal souls, allow them to bypass the second death and live forever? It makes no sense. It requires a great deal of factual ignorance or ignoring and the evidence that is uh, profound in its nature and content in scripture. Yet many today reject God's offer of forgiveness and access to heaven. 
And I would like to address three of those reasons that are offered or excuses that people use today. But the truth is, concerning the reality of who the person of Christ is, our title this morning, this Easter Sunday, again, is a bit unusual, but it is, there's no excuse. Our title is, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for what? There's no excuse for rejecting Jesus being the, who the Bible says he is, that he did what the Bible said he did, including dying for our sins, including rising from the dead. Yet, many excuses are offered today, and we will use our text to identify three of the more common ones. Now, of the many events we could consider this day, I want to look at one that took place on the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's an event that involves, or a series that involves two ordinary people, people like you and me, people with hopes, people with dreams, people with doubts, people with fears, and how Easter, the resurrection, changed the world and changed their lives. And I believe that can happen for some watching online today. Now the story is of two of Jesus' disciples. They're taking a seven mile walk home to Emmaus after a nightmarish weekend in Jerusalem. Two people who were once filled with hope and joy, now going home, feeling defeated, discouraged, and in despair. So on this beautiful Resurrection Sunday, let's take a walk with a couple of people who were there when Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, and listen in on a conversation they had with a stranger who joins them suddenly on their sad journey home. And I would say it'd probably feel pretty good to get outside and go for a walk right about now after being quarantined for a while. So let's catch up with this dejected pair, beginning with Luke 24, verses 13 through 18. So read along with me, please, either via the screen or your open Bible. Luke 24, 13 through 18 is where we'll start our journey. Now behold, Two of them were traveling that same day, the day Jesus rose from the dead, to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things that had happened. And so it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of those whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And you have not known the things which have happened there in these days? Pray with me, please. And Lord, we now ask that you would bless our time together, unconventional though it may be. We thank you that your word is unchanging. It stands fast in the heavens. It does not return void. So no matter the circumstance in which we hear it, it will, God, have the purposed effect in which you determine. And Lord, we ask that your word would find a home in our hearts today. And Lord, perhaps even save one who needs their salvation this day, this day where you purchased it, proved it by not just your death, not just your time in the tomb, but also your resurrection and ascension. We ask now your blessing on your word in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we know this story has a wonderful ending because we have the perspective of being where we are in the timeline of prophecy right now. Now, there are some today who I believe can have a wonderful ending to this day and this message as well, and even begin a walk with Jesus. So let's back up a little bit and take in the big picture with these two. Someone that they admired and loved and even revered had died. And as they were walking, talking about the pain of the events of this weekend, a man joins them of whom they are unaware uh, of who he is, his identity, as their eyes were veiled to the fact that he was indeed Jesus whom they were talking about. And Luke tells us that the despair of their hearts was so deep that you could see it on their faces. Things hadn't gone the way they expected, as we'll see in a moment unexpected hardship had come into their world that had dashed their hopes. Life had taken an unexpected turn. Tragedy intruded on their hopes and dreams. And these two are not unlike many people today. Life brings the unexpected. 
Sorrow rudely interrupts the course of life. Tragedy strikes, and some say what the two say to Jesus, even yet today, don't you know what has happened? Are you unaware of what has transpired? During this lockdown period, there was a mother who was working from home and next to her office or adjacent to her office was her young five-year-old son and her two-year-old daughter who she was trying to keep an ear on and get her work done at the same time. And she all of a sudden heard her five-year-old boy screaming and she leaped up from her desk, ran in to the uh, family room, saw her little guy rubbing his head and he said, she pulled my hair. Well, mom says as she kisses her boy on the head, she doesn't know it hurts. She's only two years old. She doesn't know how that feels. And she goes back to her office. The kids return to playing. And then it's not another five minutes later. And again, she hears another scream from her young guy. She runs in the room and there he is again, rubbing his head. And she, he said, she pulled my hair again. And mom very lovingly says, honey, remember, she's just a baby. She's only two. She doesn't know how bad that hurts. And mom again kisses her guy on the forehead, stands up, heads back to her office. She doesn't even make the family room door. And she hears another scream. This time it's from her little two-year-old. And she turns around and her red-faced and angry little five-year-old guy says, she knows it hurts now. Well, sometimes people feel like Jesus doesn't know they've been hurt. Sometimes people think that if he cared, he wouldn't allow them to suffer or experience pain. He could have and should have stopped the unexpected and painful life event, some say. And some are questioning why God hasn't stopped the SARS-2 pandemic. And I can't answer why God or how God makes his decisions, why sometimes he intervenes, sometimes he chooses not to. I can't answer the question why he heals some and chooses not to heal others. So rather than make a case for what we don't know or an argument from absence, what I do know is this. In Isaiah 53, three and four, we're told of Jesus that he is despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Well, the first excuse many use for rejecting God's offer of salvation are the unexpected struggles and the pains and traumas of life. Why would God allow this? Why would God not have stopped it? If God loved me, why would he let this happen to me? And for those who may have those questions, I want you to know God does love you. But many times people are looking for his love in all the wrong places. And I would say to you, my friend, who may be questioning, don't blame God when the devil pulls your hair. And listen this morning, here's the first of three things I want you to consider. God's love is proven by the sufferings of Jesus, not the absence of our own. God's love is proven by the sufferings of Jesus, not the absence of our own. Listen, sometimes life is hard. Sometimes the unexpected come our way. But the fact is, Jesus promised to be with us as the Holy One of Israel, as Isaiah 43, 2 and 3 reminds us that when we pass through the waters, he'll be with us. And through the rivers, they will not overtake us. And when we walk through the fire, we will not be burned, for he is the Holy One of Israel, our Savior. He goes through those things with us. He cares for us in the midst of those things. No, he doesn't avert them all. No, he doesn't stop them all. No, he doesn't do things in the way we wish he would do at times, but the fact is, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for me. In his betrayal and suffering for our sins, he became acquainted with grief. We don't have a high priest, Hebrews 4.15 says, who doesn't sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus knows the depth of pain that some are experiencing today. And yet Romans 5, 6 through 8 makes our point where it says, when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a demonstration of God's love like no other. He sent his son into the world to die for you that you might live with him. God the Father knows what it means to watch a loved one die, one who didn't deserve it. God the Son knows what it means to be betrayed even by a friend. He knows what it means to be an outcast. He knows what it means to be lonely and face circumstances by himself. He knows the struggles and pains of life in a fallen world. And listen, if you want to know how God feels about you, look to the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the greatest I love you in human history. And God so loves us, he sent his son to die for the sins we have committed. And what he asks in return is that we repent, change our mind and life direction, believe and live for him, which by the way, is the most fulfilling way to live this life, living it for God. Listen, don't walk this road of life like the two on the Emmaus road, blinded to who Jesus is because of your struggles and pains in life. The next life has no struggles. The next life has no pains. And Jesus died, rose, and ascended so that heaven can be the future home and existence for all who believe. Now, let's get back on the road with the discouraged pair and listen in on the conversation once again. Remembering that two had just said to Jesus, don't you know about all the things that just happened? Let's pick it up in 19 through 24. And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Well, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, but him they did not see. Now these two dejected disciples tell this stranger what they expected Jesus to do. They expected Jesus to deliver them from Roman oppression. But the priests and leaders interrupted that by crucifying him. And then they said, this morning, some people said he wasn't in the tomb anymore. He was missing. Some said he was alive. Others ran to see the tomb and Jesus was nowhere to be found. Now think about the whole of this scene. These two had been told Jesus was alive. Credible men and fellow disciples had seen the tomb was empty, namely Peter and John, who were amongst the three who made up Jesus' inner circle. Yet here they are, still going home, still defeated, still dejected, still without hope, even with all this information from credible witnesses. Why? Because the actions of the religious rulers overshadowed the words of Jesus himself that he would be killed, yet he would rise again on the third day. And this too is where many fall prey to offering excuses for rejecting Jesus as Messiah. They offer as an excuse the actions of people who claim to know God like the religious leaders did and the priests did. And as these two men pointed them out and offered them as the cause of all that had happened. And in 1 John 3, 2 to 3, we're told, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has, I would ask you to say everyone, but you're not here, but you can say it at home. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now listen, I will be the first to say, and I'm sure my wife at home would agree, that Christians aren't perfect. I'm not perfect, neither is anyone listening. And John tells us we're not going to be fully like him until we're with him and we see him and then we'll be as he is. 
But I want you to think this through this morning. There are a few things that people often say when it comes to Christianity and specifically the members of the church. I'm sure we've all heard it said at one time or another, there are too many hypocrites in the church. Well, they're right. But church is the perfect place for a hypocrite to go and hear the word of God and receive counsel and wisdom from his word. Other people will offer this. We've all heard it. We've all said it. I would agree with it. TV preachers are always asking for money. I'm sure you've heard that. Maybe you've even said that. But I want you to play this scenario out to its end. Imagine you live a long life. And having come to an end of your days here on earth, you find yourself standing before God, having never accepted God's only offer of salvation, which is through Jesus Christ the Lord. You wind up at the great white throne judgment and you stand before him who sits on the throne. And he looks to you and he says, I loved you so much. I sent my son to die for all your sins, every wrong thing you ever did. I did this even though you didn't ask me to. And time and time again, I tried to tell you and show you how much I loved you through my word, through others. And every Easter of your life, you were reminded of my love for you. Then the Father says to you, yet you never accepted my offer of salvation, my offer of forgiveness. Why is that, that you rejected my constant expressions of love toward you? And then imagine in this scene, you look into the most loving eyes anyone has ever seen, the most forgiving and majestic face there is, and you offer to him this excuse. TV preachers were always asking for money and the church is full of hypocrites. Think about that. Remember this, when Jesus called the 12 men we referred to as the disciples, and all the thousands he spoke to in his ministry, those he called out of various vocations and stations in life, no matter who they were, rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, he said to them all, follow me. He didn't say, John, follow Andrew. Andrew, follow James. Mary, follow Priscilla. James, follow Peter. And if any of them mess up, quit following. And he didn't say, follow TV preachers either. He said, follow me. Now, let me ask you this morning, what does the fact that TV preachers are always asking for money have to do with you having your sin forgiven? You're assuming God told them to do that, and I can assure you, he didn't. Are you going to let a few charlatans be your excuse for rejecting heaven and choosing hell? And what does knowing a Christian who fell into sin have to do with you rejecting the sinless Savior who died for you so that you might have eternal life through him? Listen, God isn't after your money. And yes, there are hypocrites in the church, but is that worth going to hell for? Well, I have to say no. And it brings us to our next truth this Easter Sunday morning. Listen, I've already said it. Here it is in point form. The failures of God's people are no excuse for rejecting him. The failures of God's people are no excuse for rejecting him. The priests and the leaders were amongst the Jews, God's chosen people. And these two were blaming what happened on them. But the fact is Jesus came to die. He came to give his life for you and I. And let me point this out through the biblical narrative and the course of it as it made its way through time. Abraham failed, and yet he was called the friend of God. Moses failed, and yet the Bible reports him as being the meekest man in all the earth. David failed, yet the Lord said he's a man after his own heart. Peter failed, even denied the Lord three times, and yet the Lord chose him to preach the first gospel sermon of the church age and use him as the vessel through which the Lord, by his spirit, would save 3,000 souls in one teaching setting. Paul and Barnabas had such a dispute over Barnabas' nephew Mark that they parted ways and dissolved their ministry partnership. And listen, the behavior of God's people is no excuse for rejecting God because if God only saves the perfect, we're all going to hell. But the fact is he saves imperfect people through the blood of a perfect savior. Now I already quoted Hebrews 4.15, we'll add 16 this morning, that we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Now here's what we can do because of that. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Listen, if there is one thing in life we all need help in, it's getting to heaven. We can't get there on our own. We can't get there by being a good moral person. We can't get there through a series of good works. We can't get there through ritual of uh, religious observations. And listen this morning, did you see a Christian have a moment of weakness or maybe even lots of them? Well, listen, Jesus faced every temptation, but he never sinned. Did you get cheated by someone who said they're a Christian? I have more than once, but those people can't save me or you. And their actions don't have any need or have any impact on my need for a savior or Jesus' ability to save me. Jesus will never cheat you. Jesus will never lie to you. Jesus will never fail you. And he will do for you all he said in his word that he would do. Now, there might be too many hypocrites in the church, but there isn't one on the throne. Jesus is no hypocrite. And therefore the failures of those who claim to know God is a poor excuse for rejecting him. Besides, when it comes to hypocritical Christians, remember, claiming to know him doesn't mean you do. Follow Jesus, not Christians. He is the sinless savior who never fails. Now, let's catch up with the trio one last time and listen in as they walk and talk. Pick it up in 25 and we'll read down through verse, verse 35. Now remember, they said about the women who went to the tomb, or the two uh, disciples who went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, but they didn't see him. So Jesus replied and said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? At the beginning, or and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning him, them, himself, brother. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then... Their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them and gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. What an amazing turnaround. But notice what happened. These two had seen Jesus before his death. They had seen the mighty things he had done, heard of many of the others. The things he said and did from the cross were fresh in their minds. The nails, the spear, and now the rumors of a resurrection. They had all these experiences behind them, but what did Jesus use to open their eyes? He used the word. He shared the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures with them that foretold the things that would happen to the Messiah that were written hundreds and in some cases, even thousands of years in advance. Now, this brings us to the most frequent and poorest of excuses to reject God's offer of salvation. I think we all recognize Jesus is not physically here, but we established earlier from John's gospel, the supremacy of the word of God and it being metaphorically connected to the personage of Jesus himself. The word was with God and the word is God. And that means this Easter Sunday morning that there is no excuse for, and here's our third observation, rejecting God's word for lack of proof. It's, it is divine. There's no excuse for rejecting God's word for lack of proof. It is divine. There is overwhelming evidence that this book is unlike any other, that it has to have an author outside of humanity, even though humans held the pen, 40 authors over 1,500 years, who the Holy Spirit inspired to write the things that we report on and revere today. And Jesus said to the forlorn pair, oh, foolish ones, don't you realize that all these things were foretold? All these things were predestined to happen. The sufferings, the resurrection, the ascending back to glory. I mentioned Richard Dawkins earlier, 
who says without apology or hesitation, nothing made everything. I found it comical that he wrote a book titled The Blind Watchmaker with the subtitle, Why the Evidence of Evolution Reveals a Universe Without Design. And Dawkins presents an explanation of and an argument for the theory of evolution by the means of natural selection. Well, first of all, natural selection is simply survival of the fittest, and that's not evolution. Evolution is one thing changing into another. And over a long period of time, which the evolutionists claim, billions of years, this has never been observed, this has never been proven. And he claims that evolution has been duplicated in a lab, and that's a self-refuting argument. His argument that nothing made everything means you can't have a lab. You can't have any elementary particles by which you conduct your experiment, because then you've got a controlled environment and you cannot call the results of your experiment evolution. And one of his favorite statements is, the appearance of design is illusory. In other words, Richard Dawkins is saying, even though as we examine evidence, it looks like there was an intelligent designer, but that's just an illusion. It's not really true because he starts with a conclusion and builds a premise from there. And his conclusion is evolution is true, even though it has absolutely zero evidence that would prove it. The truth is evolution is not true. The appearance of design means there is a designer and that designer is God. And the scriptures say in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the rest of the book is evidence to support it, including Romans chapter 1, 20 to 22, where we're told since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became, and read it along at home, fools. Listen, you can deny the existence of a creator God, but you'll have no evidence to support your position. You'll have to make up foolish arguments like nothing created everything. And listen, there is even more proof outside the complexity of God's created universe, and that evidence can be described in one word, and that word is Jesus. Jesus is proof that God created everything. And you might be thinking, why are you mentioning evolution during a Resurrection Sunday message? because Jesus' resurrection proves that Jesus had no ordinary death, and thus he was no ordinary man. He was the God-man, through whom and for whom all things were created. And that's why the apostle Paul would remind us in 1 Corinthians 15, three and four, for I delivered to you first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Listen, this morning, Jesus was born where the Bible said he would be born. He was of the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe the Bible said he would be of. He was born into the lineage of David, like the Bible said he would be. He lived where the Bible said he would live. He died how the Bible said he would die. He rose as the Bible said he would do. And all these things written anywhere from 700 to 1,000 years before any of them took place. And Jesus cites his evidence to these two forlorn followers, the one thing that separates the Bible from every other religious writing, and that is prophecy. The Bible not only records the past, including first life and how things began and were made, it also dares to predict the future and has a track record of 100% accuracy. The first coming of Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in and of itself. And thus, we need to remember the words of the psalmist this morning from Psalm 138:2, where the psalmist says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. Listen, if you wanna know the plan of God, you need to study the word of God and hear the Bible taught by a person of God, not an atheist producer from the liberal media who makes things to question uh, the veracity of the teachings of the Bible for uh, the History Channel or some other uh, uh, media uh, outlet that is seeking to dis discredit the Christian faith. And listen, you certainly don't need to be getting your information about the Bible from a professor in college with a PhD who promotes a foolish theory as though it is provable fact, and certainly not from someone who is of another religion who says that God could not have had a son and he could not have become a human being. 
Listen, there are no good reasons to reject God's word, just poor excuses, because there is no lack of evidence that it's divinely inspired. It is inspired on every page, and Bible prophecy proves that to be true. And this argument is decimated by one person and one person alone, and that is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Why do I say that? He walked on water, proving he could defy the laws of nature. He healed people of lifelong infirmities. He turned water into wine, which is a miracle. He fed thousands with five pieces of bread and two fish, which is a creative miracle. Now, John 1.18 reminds us, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him or he has made him known to us. Colossians 1.15, which I alluded to earlier in 15 to 17 of the first chapter, we're told he is the image, the Greek word there is icon, the physical manifestation of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean he was born first. It simply means that he is the heir of the father. Firstborn is a title. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him, him being Jesus, and for him, and he is before, or he pre-existed before all things, and in him all things consist, or they are held together. Listen, Jesus and the Father, which are distinct personage, uh, personages of the one triune Godhead, they along with the Holy Spirit, make up the Godhead. Jesus is the physical manifestation of God, proven by his miraculous power, and the fact that he was prophesied of in advance and he fulfilled them all, at his first coming or concerning his first coming, and he will fulfill them all concerning his return. And listen, there's no excuse for not recognizing that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And listen, times are hard right now. The world is filled with confusion and we need someone steadfast and immovable who is all-knowing and powerful to guide us through and strengthen us in this season of troubled waters. That person is Jesus. The Apostle Paul described him like this. In 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. God became flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now, as you can see on the front of the podium, our theme for this Easter Sunday morning, this resurrection day is alive. Because the truth is, Jesus is not a historical figure. Historical figures are all dead. Jesus is alive. And there was another thing that happened after Jesus rose from the dead, besides the conversation that we join today. In Acts 1, 8 through 11, we're told you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria or the West Bank and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven and he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, Jesus is coming again. This same Jesus who came as the Bible said he would, who did what the Bible said he would do, is coming again as the Bible said he will. And the Bible said he would come at a time when the world was exceedingly violent, when immorality was sweeping the globe, when creation is being called into question, when a global governmental system and currency are sought after by the world as plagues increase along with earthquakes, wars, ethnic tensions, and famines. What does all that mean? Jesus is coming soon. It is, a, it is an amazing time to be alive. To think that at any moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we could be supernaturally translated 
into the presence of the Lord. But that begs the question, are you ready to go? Are you ready to meet him? The evidence is overwhelming and don't listen to the detractors and the naysayers concerning the Bible's presentation of Christ as the Messiah, nor those who within the body as we started our time together here, who like to point out anything they disagree with as invalidating the teachings of another portion of the church. The Bible clearly teaches there is going to be an instantaneous catching away of believers in the last days to take them to be with the presence of the Lord, to return with Jesus when he comes back at the end of the tribulation. It's not in the Bible, the word that is, it's the rapture of the church, the catching away, bringing us into the place Paul uh, talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, where we put on immortal incorruptibility that we might live forever in the place that Jesus is, as he promised to take us to in John 14, 1 through 3. But the fact is he's coming for those who are ready. And that's why he said in the midst of his basic dialogue with four of the apostles concerning the last days and the signs of his return, he said in Matthew 24, 44, therefore you also be ready. Listen, the only way to be ready for the Lord to come to get you is to be born again. You must be born again. You must not only be born of the water of a woman, meaning be borning, uh, born of the flesh, but you must be born of the spirit as well. And this is what Jesus said to one of the leading rulers in Israel, the teacher of Israel, he called Nicodemus in John 3, as we talked about on Good Friday evening. You must be born again. And listen, there's no reason, there's only poor excuses for rejecting the message of the Bible. And listen, if you're here today and out of curiosity joined us online, God loves you and it's proven by the cross. It's not proven by you never having any problems. It's not proven by you never going through any tribulation. We live in a fallen world and people do mean and hateful things to one another. Accidents happen, tragedies invade lives that were otherwise moving ahead and progressing normally and even wonderfully. Things come into our lives that none of us want, none of us desired, none of us expected. But that doesn't make the fact that the Bible says God loves you negated by the experiences of life. And listen, don't let what some Christian did push you away from God. God will never do things to you that some people have done to you, even people who name the name of Jesus. The fact is God has a demonstrated love that is unquestionable and proven by the cross, his death, and resurrection and ascension into heaven. God loves you, he came for you, he died for you, so you can live with him forever. And please do not reject God's offer of salvation because time is short. I have believed the whole of my Christian life that Jesus was coming soon and in the grand scheme of things, you might think, well, geez, for almost 40 years you believed that Jesus was coming soon? What's your definition of soon? Well in the length of time that the church has been on the face of the earth, I would say it's a lot sooner than it was when he said he's coming again to the disciples at the Last Supper in 32 AD. Jesus is, in a relative sense, coming soon. I believe he could come today. That is why you have to be ready. There's no time to get ready when he comes. You have to also be ready, and you can only be ready by giving your life to Christ, acknowledging he is who the Bible says he is, asking him to forgive your sin, Come into your life via his Holy Spirit that you might live for him forever. No matter what else happens to you, no matter what another Christian does, Jesus never fails. He is alive forevermore. And that is why when the women came to the tomb to anoint his body, he came, they came and found the stone rolled away. And the angel said to the women who had come, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Listen, Jesus is alive. And the fact is, you need him to save you. So if you haven't made that commitment to Christ, if you have not asked him to forgive your sin, if you have not acknowledged that he is who the Bible says he is, if you have yet to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you need to make that decision today and let this Easter be what every Easter is about, a resurrection from death to life. You, moving forward in life, no longer being spiritually, spiritually dead, but being made alive in Christ. We serve a risen Savior who is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, the Bible says, living daily to make intercession for us. I pray you make a decision today, if you haven't already, to accept Christ as your Savior and surrender to him as your Lord. 
And Father, we are grateful for this time together, this resurrection day, this Easter Sunday. We are thankful that you reached down from heaven through the prophets and moved their hands, as Peter wrote, as holy men of God were moved by the Spirit to write the words of what would happen in the future. And Lord, we thank you that amongst those things you had them write of was your Son coming into the world being despised and rejected by men, dying a sinner's death, though he was unjustly accused, dying amongst the wicked, yet being buried among the rich, and then rising again and seeing the fruit of his labors and ministry, implying he would have to be alive after death in order to see the fruit of all that he had done and accomplished. So Lord, in, in uh, light of this overwhelming evidence, we pray today that there would be those who have repented and been converted and have made the decision, the wise decision to follow Jesus. We thank you for the preponderance of evidence we have examined today and the facts of the resurre resurrection that are indisputable resonate in our hearts and minds today as we recognize that you are not in the tomb your body was not stolen. Early in the morning on the first day of the week, you rose from the dead, proving that you are the authority over all creation. We give you thanks, we give you praise, we give you honor, we give you glory this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And listen, I hope that if there are some watching who did not have a relationship with Christ that is not true of you at this point in time. As Charlie pointed out, uh, we are here uh, to take your phone calls. We wish we could talk and pray with you. But listen, if you don't have a Bible, call the church or email us uh, or connect with us through the app, and we'd be more than happy to send you a Bible, answer any questions you may have. But I pray this Resurrection Sunday is one like you've never experienced before and will always experience again should the Lord tarry for another year or two or ten, whenever he comes. But you can live with the expectancy that Jesus is coming for you and the rest of his church. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air and forever be with the Lord. And to that I say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He is risen.